0: Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 5th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Audrey Sawyer discusses uncloaking a hidden source of coastal contamination. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, and he's back to tell us about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on bees that live dangerously, and I mean really dangerously, on the side of a volcano in a place called the Kill Zone. Okay, I guess they're not going to be making honeycomb up there. What are they doing, Dave?
1: They are surprisingly buzzing around, and you wouldn't expect them or pretty much any life in this zone. But this little bee, uh, which has the scientific name Anthrophora squamulosa, which I'm probably mispronouncing, is a survivor and has been spotted. And in fact, not just, just one bee, but potentially up to 2,000 of these bees are thought to be living on the side of this volcano. And this is a volcano called Messiah. And it's just outside the Nicaraguan capital city of Managua.
0: Now, this isn't an experimental study where people added bees to a volcano, and decided to see how they could survive. This is an observational study. What did they observe over time as they followed these bees around uh, the volcano?
1: So they followed these bees around, and normally these bees, this type of bee is actually very flexible when it comes to the plants that it pollinates. But these particular bees, this population, seem very wedded to a particular plant called Melanthora nivea. This is a tough wildflower that can survive in the volcanoes. Acid rainfall.
0: Right. So it's not just hot. There's also just acid rain (laughs) falling all the time. That's why they call it the kill zone. (laughs) (laughs) And so the bees are picking on this particular plant uh, for their food. But why do researchers think that they're living so close to the volcano? I mean, is it because the plant's there?
1: Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to be living so close to the volcano. But when you think about it, there are some advantages. If most everything is dead, that means the bees don't have a lot of predators And if a lot of plants are dead, too, it uh, it turns out the roots of plants can actually break up bee nests. So the fewer plants you've got around, the more luck that you're going to have with your nest. So these bees seem to have carved out this niche here in the volcano where it's probably not pleasant every day, but there definitely do seem to be some advantages.
0: Next up, we have a story on damaged dino bones. Reading this story really reminded me that researchers basically do a post-mortem, like a forensic analysis on dinosaur bones when they come across them. They look at something, you know, 70 million years old and think about what killed it and what diseases it suffered from, even what its life was like. In this case, they found a kind of arthritis in dinosaur bones. What kind of dino are we talking about here, Dave? And what clues do they have at first that something might be going on?
1: Well, this is a duck-billed dinosaur that lived in what is today New Jersey 70 million years ago.
0: I've never really even heard of paleontology going on in Jersey.
1: Well, it turns out that this is actually a pretty rich trove of fossils over here. This is um an area where a wealth of fossils have been found, swimming ancient reptiles like plesiosaurs and mosasaurs, crocodiles, turtles, plus A handful of duck-billed dinosaurs, also known as uh, hadrosaurs.
0: When they took a closer look at these bones, they were looking for disease. But it's really tricky, you know, to do this kind of postmortem on fossilized bones. What did they have to do to learn more?
1: Well, they had to turn to a technique called X-ray microtomography. And basically, this is a type of X-ray that allowed them to actually not just see the exterior of the bones, but actually take a look inside. And that's really important because, as you can imagine nobody's going to let you really mess around with their dinosaur bones are already very old and very fragile. So you can't just go breaking them up to figure out what happened. And so this is a very sort of non-invasive technique the researchers used.
0: They decided that this dino had septic arthritis. What is that and how could they tell?
1: Well, it's basically a bone disease that often starts when there's an injury followed by an infection and that can cause arthritis type symptoms and other problems.
0: What were the clues that they saw in in their imaging technique that led them to think this was going on?
1: Well, on the inside, the bone showed signs of erosion. They were kind of porous and almost styrofoam-like instead of the healthy, dense bone that you would expect to find. And on the outside, there were areas of bone growth like bulges and spurs of new bone that that can form in response to an injury.
0: Do we know how the dinosaur got hurt?
1: We don't, but we do know that it probably survived for some time after the injury because we see this extra bone growth after the injury. We also know that the hadrosaurs were prey animals, so probably not too surprising that it was injured.
0: This isn't the first injury or disease that's been diagnosed in a dinosaur. What are some other examples?
1: Well, researchers have spotted everything from cancer to combat injuries in the past, but this is the first dinosaur diagnosis of septic arthritis.
0: Lastly, we have a story on the female orgasm. I couldn't decide whether to be depressed or not <laughs> about this story. It's good that people are thinking about the evolution of biology of the female orgasm, but the conclusions leave a lot to be desired. Why don't you just start us off with the big question being asked here, Dave?
1: Well, the question is, does the orgasm serve any purpose or is it just sort of an evolutionary leftover? And to get to your depressing response... These researchers are actually concluding that this is kind of just an evolutionary leftover.
0: What are some of the other theories that they would have to reject in order to make their theory the the one and only correct one?
1: Well, there's been a lot of theories, as you might imagine, over the years about just what the function of the female orgasm is. Some scientists have thought that perhaps it increases the chances of conception, although research has shown that there's really not a correlation between women who have more orgasms and who are more fertile. Or perhaps it has something to do with monogamy. Maybe you know women would be more loyal to men if they were having more orgasms during sex. Or maybe it's because the male and the female machinery, sexual machinery as it were, basically comes from the same place. And we know the male orgasm is important because males can't deliver sperm without an orgasm. And so that would imply that females have orgasms because males
0: do. Right. They both have it because it's coming from the same place. Right. These evolutionary biologists writing in this newest theory came up with an idea that it relates to ovulation. Can you talk about how they made that connection?
1: Well, the interesting thing about humans and other primates is that we ovulate without sort of external stimulation. So a lot of other mammals, for example, a male has to get close to the female, do something to the female, even have sex with the female to induce ovulation, or maybe something environmental induces ovulation. But for women, it's sort of on a regular cycle, and for a lot of other primates, it's the same way, and there's no, really nothing that that primes it or stimulates it.
0: And so what they did was make a connection between stimulated ovulation and orgasm. They said, we see this pattern of hormones that leads to stimulated ovulation, and we see a similar pattern of hormones, when we see orgasm. So maybe these things are tied together.
1: So they did something else, and they actually dug through the scientific literature to figure out what came first, this spontaneous ovulation or this uh, male-induced ovulation. And what they found is actually the male-induced ovulation came first. So what this means is that over evolutionary time, at least for humans, this pattern of hormones exists, but it's been decoupled from ovulation. So Females are ovulating, females are having orgasm, but the two things aren't really related to each other anymore.
0: Here's where I think it's depressing, and you brought this up earlier. Does this mean that female orgasms are non-adaptive, that it's some kind of leftover spandrel and could be lost?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely an implication here is that, you know, their reasoning for why only a small percentage of women have orgasm during sex is because they don't need to. If women needed to have orgasm during sex, all women would be having orgasm during sex otherwise we wouldn't be here anymore and so that definitely leads to this idea that potentially you know hundreds thousands of years from now if humans keep evolving the way we have been now that the female orgasm at least could disappear completely we're not done <laughs> <laughs> so
0: one of the one of the things that is the kind of the big drawback to the study is that there isn't any experimental evidence to back this up no one gave hormones in a specific sequence to a woman and made her orgasm or deprived her of them and asked them how she felt. And we can't ask animals that have a similar pattern of hormones if they have these feelings. So it sounds like in the end, we really just have another theory to put on the pile.
1: I think that's fair. But on the flip side, this suggests that, you know, women who maybe in the past have been told that they're not having orgasm because it's a psychological issue or it's a medical issue, it may in fact just be an evolutionary issue.
0: Okay, what else is on the site this week?
1: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how an ancient flood may have started the Chinese civilization. Also a story about a mysterious Cold War research and military base buried in the ice that may be uncovered by climate change. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why Russian scientists are bracing for massive layoffs. Also a story about why a new clinical trial that aims to put The blood of young people into other people to reverse the effects of aging is encountering criticism. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site.
0: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Climate change is a real threat to our world. You can help stop or slow down climate change by reducing your carbon footprint by being conscientious about your small and large purchases from electric cars to compact fluorescent bulbs. Today's sponsor, Wonder Capital, offers another way to reduce our collective footprint. Wonder Capital helps small and medium-sized businesses in the U.S. go solar. Businesses like farms, warehouses, malls, gas stations, Wonder helps by financing solar panels for these businesses. Wonder Capital won the 2014 U.S. Department of Energy's Sunshot Challenge and the 2015 COSIA Summit Award. Wonder offers the opportunity to invest in their solar funds, which in turn helps set these local businesses up to harness solar power. The best part is your investment with wonder not only helps businesses go solar and reduce our collective carbon footprint, but can generate an annual return of up to 11%. Learn how you can begin earning up to 11% at www.wondercapital.com science. That's wonder with a U. www.wondercapital.com science. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Rivers deliver water to the ocean, but water is also discharged along the coast in a much more diffuse way. This submarine groundwater discharge carries dissolved chemicals out to sea, but the underground nature of these outflows makes them difficult to quantify. Audrey Sawyer is here to talk about the scale of this discharge and how it affects coastal waters surrounding the U.S. Audrey, can we just start with how this all works? How does Uh, submarine groundwater discharge fit in with water cycles more broadly?
2: Sure. In general, when uh, it rains, the water falls on the land, and it has to make its way out to the ocean again somehow. We're all pretty familiar with the part of that water that flows out to the ocean in rivers. But there's another component of the water that fell on the land that infiltrates near the coast and comes out below water as submarine groundwater discharge. And we might have some familiarity with this if you've ever been swimming in a lake or in the ocean and you've felt a cold spot in the summer. There's a good chance that that cold spot was due to groundwater seeping out underfoot. And so this is really what our study has been looking at, is revealing this hidden flow of groundwater coming out along our nation's coasts. Right.
0: And it seems like this would be a difficult thing to get a handle on. I mean, it's submarine. It's not something you're going to see, especially at the level of a continent or the United States. How did you get numbers for this study?
2: We needed two things. First, we needed high-resolution topographic maps that tell us the areas of land that contribute water or drain to rivers. And from that information or those maps, we could tell the areas of land near the coast, that don't flow to rivers and instead contribute water directly to the shoreline or the coast. And then we needed to know how much rain falls in those little coastal wedges of land and infiltrates and becomes groundwater. And from that information that we got from climate data, we were able to tell how much of that groundwater comes out along the shore all along the coast.
0: This sounds really like you have to hand-build each little tiny area as a model. What were some of the important factors in understanding how much submarine groundwater discharge is happening on any of these given areas?
2: There are two factors. One is climate, how wet or dry an area is, and how much rain infiltrates on land and comes out as groundwater along the coast. Another important factor is topography, how big of an area of coastal land contributes groundwater to the coast. But humans play a role too. And Florida was a really interesting example of this. We expected that the groundwater discharge rates along the coast of Florida might be pretty high Mm -hmm. because Florida gets a fair amount of rain and it has sandy, well-drained soils. But we actually saw in some places that groundwater discharge rates were less than we expected, and those were often areas that were heavily dissected by man made canals. And the canals, uh, we believe, essentially intercept groundwater that would have discharged to the coast and instead comes out through the canals. So what humans do to drain the land, also paved surfaces Mm -hmm. that we put over the land, have a big influence, we believe, on the way groundwater comes out along the coast. Could you put some of these numbers out for us? You know, how much of the
0: water that falls on the land ends up in rivers, and how much of it goes to the ocean through this more subtle way?
2: Sure. It turns out that rivers are really efficient at draining continents. And so most water that falls as rain on continents comes out through rivers. But a small percentage in our numbers, less than 1% of all the rain that falls on the land, comes out below ground through groundwater discharged to the coast. But the reason that little tiny fraction is important is because first it's hidden and hard to measure, And second, the amount of contamination in that groundwater can be much higher than the amount in rivers. So groundwater inputs to the coast can really have a disproportionate influence on coastal water quality. Because groundwater carries these contaminants,
0: do your numbers suggest that our waters are more at risk from contamination than we thought?
2: Well, it's generally known from a few local studies and different bays and beaches that groundwater can be a major source of contamination to the coast, and that's because it picks up things like nutrients from leaky septic tanks or from fertilizers being applied to the land. But we had so few measurements around the nation and have so few measurements around the world that it was really hard to predict and know where the contamination was most severe. And so what our analysis does is it gives us essentially maps of where groundwater might be carrying more contamination out to sea. And some of those places that stood out on our maps are places like the Mid-Atlantic and New England coast that are heavily populated. Also, the northern Gulf around Mississippi and Alabama as well as the Pacific Northwest, these are places that tend to have greater amounts of contamination entering coastal waters from groundwater, according to our estimates. And these are all in the U.S. Can you take lessons learned here, which seem to have
0: a lot of variability depending on terrain and climate? Can you take the way you did this work and make estimates about what's happening on other coasts, on other continents?
2: From these maps, we know that we tend to have greater groundwater discharge where there's a wet climate and where there's steep terrain. But we also know from these maps that the amount of groundwater coming out at the coast can be really variable, and what you measure in one place on the coast might be very different than what's happening a mile down along the coast. And so that means it's important to use the same methods that we used as more topographic information becomes available around the world to understand and map groundwater discharge globally. And this is going to be essential for understanding how humans are impacting coastal water quality.
0: So the answer is to take many, many measurements and understand the lay of the land pretty well?
2: Well, measurements are really expensive and hard to get. They involve going out on a boat or with waders and snorkels and lots of equipment and often lots of students. Uh, so the novel thing about our approach is that we were able to use existing data and maps to understand groundwater coming out all along the coast. And this is something we were able to do for the United States right now, and we hope to be able to do for the world shortly as better topographic information comes online.
0: Well, now that we know that there are these hot spots on the coast, is this something we can use to to manage or mitigate some of this pollution?
2: Certainly. We really hope that this data that we've provided in these maps can be used to think about where we should be monitoring contaminants coming out in groundwater to the oceans and also think about strategies for improving coastal water quality by managing our coastal land better, thinking about how we build canals, how we pave coastal surfaces, how we put in septic tanks along the coast. Right. One thing we didn't touch on yet was the fact that this is not a one-way leaching of freshwater into the sea. Things can also go backwards, right? That's right. So another way that humans can influence groundwater discharge to the coast is that we can pump on groundwater onshore to use that water for fresh drinking water. And that can reverse the flow and cause saltwater to invade our coastal aquifers from sea to land. And so another thing our analysis was able to give us is areas of the coast that might be at risk to saltwater invasion, which can render our coastal freshwater non-drinkable.
0: All right, Audrey, thanks so much for talking with me. It was my pleasure. Audrey Sawyer is a professor in the School of Earth Sciences at The Ohio State University. She and her colleagues write about groundwater discharge to the oceans this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.